Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. Because somewhere right now, there is a maladjusted 19-year-old who must show at Hauser & Worth 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. Because if Hauser & Worth can't get that artist 20 years from now, and instead they're at Zwerner, or instead they're at Pace 20 years from now, then they're losers. So that 19-year-old has power. They don't know they have it, but they have it. And somebody's got to discover them. And somebody's got to give them their first shows. Mm -hmm. And somebody's got to put them in public so that they can be then identified by these other great galleries. Born in Spain, raised in Newark, a rebel against his Catholic education, a punk rock band tour manager, before building a stellar career, life and reputation in the art world, is this week's guest, internationally renowned gallerist and owner of New York's team gallery, Jose Freire. In this wrong candid interview, Jose explains the impact of his abusive upbringing. He discusses his innate curiosity, the role of shame, and an enduring desire to escape. We also explore how his experiences on the streets of 1970s New York helped him develop his identity, sense of taste, his aesthetic and style. Jose recounts his experiences as a punk band tour manager, becoming a DJ, and how a serendipitous late-night encounter in a club called Berlin led him to begin his career in art and galleries. From 30 Minutes In, we explore the arc of Jose's life as one of the world's most renowned and respected feeder gallerists. I hope you enjoy this raw and revealing exploration into the inspiring life journey of New York gallerist Jose Freire. Hi, Mark. Hi, Jose. First of all, I have to start because I've got a, I've got our partner Elaine who's, who couldn't be here today, and she's Mexican, and I'm supposed to be learning Spanish. So, uh, buenos días, cómo estás? Yo estoy bastante bien. ¿Y tú cómo estás? Ah, bueno. <laughs> you can see that I'm just a beginner. <laughs> Did you tell me to say that? No, <laughs> it's just my Duolingo told me to do it. All right. Well, let's let's get going. Jose, thank you for being on the show. It's great to have you here at Neuhaus. Thank you very much for coming along uh, on this rainy, overcast day in New York. So before we dive in to your journey, we'd like to start with childhood. I believe you were born in Spain and moved to the US, to New Jersey. Yes. How old? Um, I was six when my parents moved here. Oh, wow. So that's a that's quite a big move. What, what brought them to New Jersey from Spain? Um, work, essentially. Mm-hmm. There was no work in Spain, in uh, the part of Spain that they were from. There was absolutely no work. Um, What part of Spain? um, They're from the northwest, Uh uh, which is a province called Galicia. Oh, yeah. And, like, it's on the Atlantic Uh, coast, not on the the Bay of Biscayne, Uh, but on the Atlantic. Mm. And the only work available there was generally agrarian work for the women and for the men working in the merchant marines, um, working on ships, essentially. So generally couples were separated with the woman staying home and the men going off to sea. Um, And I think my parents didn't want that kind of life. So they moved here to the U.S. 
Oh, wonderful. And what did they do when they arrived over here? My parents were both factory workers. My mother was a seamstress. She worked in a garment factory. And uh, we originally, we lived in the Bronx very, very briefly, but then they moved to Newark. And my childhood was spent in and around Newark. And what was it like? Do you, your memories of moving from Spain? That must have been quite a culture shock at age six. You know, sometimes I try to cast my mind back to early memories. And I don't really have them. Generally, I connect my memories to specific spaces. Mm -hmm. So I definitively remember the street on which we lived in Newark, which was called Alley A Street. It was a Polish neighborhood. My parents made friends with Polish people who lived next door, and I went to what was like a predominantly Polish Catholic school in Newark called St. Casimir's. My mother, this Spanish immigrant, made the most incredible sauerkraut, kielbasa <laughs> and sauerkraut, <laughs> She'd learned the recipe from this woman next door. And at every holiday, the family would always request that she bring kielbasa and sauerkraut. Oh, amazing. Mm -hmm. So what was your childhood like? I'm an only child. Mm -hmm. And my parents, my mother especially, sponsored her sisters. Mm -hmm. um, she had three sisters. They were all in Spain, and she brought them over to the U.S. one at a time. So she would sponsor them, which meant she would find work for them, bring them over, and they would live with us. Mm -hmm. So I had very close relationships with my mother's sisters, with my aunts. So I remember those relationships mm -hmm. very clearly. Um, I remember kind of loathing school, really hating nuns who were my my teachers. That's something I really remember. Yeah. Oh. Um, um, Mixed school. Yeah, boys and girls. Yeah. Yes, yeah. boys and girls. Um, but my teachers from, you know, in the first, second, and third grade were always nuns. Oh, nuns. That's bizarre. And when my parents moved to a, a suburb of Newark, mm -hmm. I went to another Catholic school, which was a mixed Catholic school. And there... You would sometimes alternate, like one year you would have a lay teacher and the next year you would have a nun. Um, and I always gravitated more towards the lay teachers. I had my first lay teacher when I was in fourth grade and I still remember her. Her name was Miss Mahowski. Um, I copied her handwriting. I modeled my handwriting after hers. And I remember in maybe fifth grade, I would read novels in class um, because I found whatever they were teaching to be uninvolving. Yeah. So I thought I could put my time to good use by reading novels. I don't want to say it was literary fiction. It wasn't literary fiction, but they were like big popular novels. Sounds like the nuns weren't paying much attention to what you were up to. Well, class. whenever they would find you reading, they would say, where did you get that book? Why did you get that book? So I think I, I wanted to flee. And that is something I remember from very early on, is wanting to flee, to get out of this environment. I sometimes ask people in the art world, wh where I work, which is kind of a very rarefied environment, 
how they came to think that art was accessible to them. And I, you know, I did not grow up with any notion of fine art. My parents had none whatsoever. I didn't go to a museum until I was already working in the art world. A very interesting term, desire to flee. Where did that come from? What sparked it? Well, you know, corporal punishment mm-hmm. um, is... Uh, Tell me about it. <laughs> I could tell you some stories. Okay. <laughs> um, and it was this idea that I was being raised and educated in the church and that I felt from a very early age that these people were not to be trusted with my well-being hence this desire to not be to not continue in that environment so even when i went to high school i went to all boys catholic high school so Mm -hmm. this lasted until i was i think 17 is when i finished high school and when i finally could stop doing this Catholic education thing. I, I joke, maybe a bit flippant about it. I mean, I was disciplined, came from more on the Protestant side. Of, although my father was Catholic, I was Protestant mother. Um, all the schools I went to were quite strict with discipline, particularly um, one of them when I was boarding and, and suffered uh, both canings over your, your backside and bend over and take a few of these. In the other case, when I was in sort of state schools in Scotland, they used to belt you. So you get this leather belt and you put your hands out. I'd go home at nights and I'd have these welts on my arm. My mum would slap me. <laughs> She'd get home and you'd go, what have you been doing? Batter in your ear. So you get it on two sides, <laughs> school and home life. There's yes. no ways to win. Yes, that's quite accurate to my experience Mm -hmm. as well. But the difference being, of course, I mean, I think I never felt a sense of risk or harm uh, coming from the institution itself. You know, I was a rebel. I wanted to challenge convention. I wanted to challenge the institution because of just youthful desire to disturb (laughs) and, and to challenge the institution itself. But that just comes with age. But I never felt that they were there to do me damage or harm. And I think that's obviously very different and from what I've heard from other people that have gone to Catholic schools and the sort of the Catholic church and the institution, and we all know the stories that surround it. Let's move on. The upbringing with the influence of your mother and your aunts. What about your father? Mm. Um, He was a factory worker as well. He was a factory worker as well. And to a degree, other than uh, a a figure that I feared Mm. greatly, I feared my father very much, I can't say that I feel that there was any, that he played any positive role Mm. in my life. Um, In terms of the things one casts a father as, he didn't play any of those roles whatsoever. The role that he played was um, that of a largely absent father. Um, He was, he suffered from alcoholism. He suffered from depression. He suffered from depression so crippling that it led to numerous attempts at suicide. So my mother was a caretaker for him and he rewarded that caretaking with frequent beatings. Um, So I also did not feel safe Mm. in the house. Mm. And my parents had moved when I started high school to a new town. 
And I think largely for my mother, it was to move away from neighbors who had become aware of what our home life was like. And we had moved to a new town where I had no friends. And I started high school in a town where I needed to actually take two buses to get to high school every day. So the, my, my friends at high school did not live in the town that I lived in, but my town had a train station and it was the PATH train. And I think it might've been 25 cents or 50 cents. Um, and for that, I got New York City. And I think at the age of 12 or 13, I started to take the train by myself into New York. And it what was. What year would that have been? It would have been 12 or 13. That would have been 1973. Wow. Um, when New York was truly a terrifying, <laughs> yeah, gritty place. <laughs> and it was the city that kind of acted as a parent to me. That's interesting. The reality of the streets of New York City at that time, as you say, dangerous, risky, gritty, nothing like it is today. But you had a, f a sense of the environment and school and home you, you describe as not feeling safe. Did the city of New York feel safe as an, an environment to you when yes, you came there? Yes, it felt safe to me. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, I felt safer coming to New York uh -huh. and meeting strangers than I did being at home or going to school. What was it about New York that gave you that sense of belonging, that guided you, that drew you to the city, that made you feel safe? I mean, it was a playground mm -hmm. for me um, where I could try out mm -hmm. um, different identities with nothing to ground them um, since I didn't have a home life here. Yeah. Um, I could see how I felt in different situations, what attracted me, what repelled me, and it's still my great love mm -hmm. in life is, is New York. Mm -hmm. I'd just love to just ask you a little bit about that because at that time, 1973, I was in a place called Bedford in England, a very safe environment. But similar to you, I'd moved and ended up in what was called secondary school, not high school, with a Scottish accent in an English school with um, the first time I'd encountered a multi-ethnic community. So I found myself an alien in, in, a, in a country that I was a natural English speaker, but with a Scottish accent, so I got in a lot of fights. When you went to this other place where you didn't know anyone, were you embraced by with new friends? Did you build a sort of community, or were you similar to what I found myself in this this sense of alienation? I found a community of people when I went to high school because I embraced drugs, uh -huh. and they were the they were all the druggy kids in school. They yeah. were my friends. Uh -huh. When you came to New York, were you coming with them and just hanging out with them? Or no, I always came to New York alone. That's incredible. That's ballsy. Yeah. I mean, to have done that at that age, yeah. what gave you that sense of confidence and self-belief in yourself that you could navigate and the risks that obviously came with coming to the city? Well, obviously there was some kind of an impulse that was... Um, I mean, we have to call it the death impulse. I think I, was, <laughs> yeah. I think I was very comfortable at the time with this idea that I, you know, I could find myself in some situation where I might be killed. Mm -hmm. um, and I do remember, you know, 
never gunpoint, but I do remember being ha- having knives held to my throat Gee. Um, and being in incredibly dangerous situations. But you, I just kind of adapted and learned from mm-hmm. them. Some normality for you, presumably. Yeah. But when we normally talk to guests about their their risk t- their risk taking is usually climbing trees and their sort of their playgrounds of the mind. It's it's rarely the streets of New York City in the nineteen seventies. I remember the nineteen seventies, based on what movies I mm. saw in the nineteen seventies. Taxi Driver. Taxi, uh, I, taxi, I, yeah. I, I saw Taxi Driver. I don't know, did it come out in 1975 or 1976? I was either yeah, 15. It was wasn't it? I, yeah. I, then I was 15 years old, and I would go to see these movies in New York. Uh-huh. I'd be sitting there alone. Someone, always a man, would come up and strike up a conversation with me, and I would always think to myself, I want to know where this person lives. Uh-huh. I want to know what their apartment looks like. So I would go home after the movies with whoever I had met Mm. at the movies, um, and I'd see their apartment. Okay. One of the the key things that we like to explore in people's upbringing is curiosity. So there's there's two sort of things I'm encountering here. One is how safety or lack of safety defined your journey and influenced the sort of the decisions you took in early life. But also, where did that curiosity come from? Is it was it something that was encouraged by your, obviously not your father, but your mother, to be curious and to explore? Or was it something more innate in you? I think it was something innate. The only thing that I learned from my mother was shame. And I really have always been grateful for that lesson because I think shame is a very important thing. And I think that it has served me well. Um, Can you explain? I think without, for me, without a notion of shame, I might never have had an idea of the image and Mm. what an image is, how one projects an image if one doesn't think about how others see them. And shame is largely about how others see you. So my mother um, was always very concerned with what people would think of me, what people would think of her. And that's the lesson that I learned from my mom. And this thing about wanting to see people's apartments. Um, I lived in, in you know the suburbs where you know exactly what the inside of a house looks like. You know, there's like a manicured lawn and there's like cars in the driveway so you kind of know what the inside of the house is going to look like based on the front lawn and the cars that are in the driveway. In New York, the insides of buildings are so mysterious. Yeah. And you can really find literally almost anything when you're taken into somebody's private space. Mm-hmm. And I guess I became a collector of private spaces, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think, I guess... Something that I learned at the time was to develop a sense of taste based not on what what I was raised in, but rather what was available to me in the world. And I felt that I needed to see a, a wide range of aesthetics in order to begin developing my own sense of taste. That curiosity that you had to meet people, to see their apartments, you must have seen a very diverse collection of life yes. in New York at the time. Yes. 
there must have been positive and negative experiences to that. You've gone, right, that's the direction I want to take my life career-wise. What was interesting to you? What? I don't think I actually had an idea about a career. Um, I think at the time I had passions. Mm -hmm. um, I was very passionate about literature. I was very passionate about the cinema. And I was very passionate about music. And the fact that disco and punk were simultaneous mm. events mm -hmm. in New York City, one preceded the other, but but by very, very little. Um, you could actually have, you know, disco existing on one side of the street and punk existing on the other. I, I, I liked that kind of extreme diversity. And what I was drawn towards, I think, most passionately at the time was actually music and the music scenes in New York, which I felt were, as long as you could fit in to that particular subculture, all other judgments were rescinded. So I wasn't judged on my background. I was judged solely on how I fit into the subculture. And one of the great things about all of those places is that if you looked a certain way, no one ever asked you for ID, <laughs> like you were never <laughs> carded. <laughs> um, and I always found adults more useful than children. And that is when I was very young, mm -hmm. I found adults useful. You were seeing movies in the sort of the mid 70s and hanging out in, in the music scene and absorbing that. That must have been a fascinating time in New York City from a cultural standpoint. I've had a couple of guests on here that came here sort of much later in sort of the, the, the 90s and the 2000s and just talked about how the music scene had almost disappeared from, from New York. The fact that New York defined music, it was a center for. You know, this Culture. this idea of people's favorites, mm -hmm. you know, when you ask somebody what their favorite song is or what their favorite film is, right? There is this kind of thinking that generally people point to something that mm -hmm. existed when they were 19, that there's something about the end of your teen years and the beginning of your adult years where... A certain, you take on a certain mantle of responsibility and that previous to that there had been some kind of freedom, some level of freedom that's lost. Mm -hmm. And generally the artwork, the art event, the song, the, the film that people touch on is something from that last moment of full freedom. So I look back on this like these halcyon years yeah. of like the art and the music scene in New York and think, were they really great? Were they really different? Mm -hmm. Or is it just nostalgia for mm -hmm. me now? Mm -hmm. For example, in 1978, I went to London, and I went to London for 14 months. Um, I think originally when I went, I went for three months, and it ended up being just slightly over a year, right? 14 months. Um, 1978, 1979, and part of my wanting to go there was to see if punk was any more authentic uh, there yeah, than, it than it was here. And it was just inauthentic in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of the bands of that period, punk bands and, you know, post-punk, the beginning of these kinds of new kinds of psychedelic music and mm -hmm. garage music in the early 80s was very pivotal to mm -hmm. me. And my first employment, my first gainful employment was in the music business. You 
moved here around what, 79? I moved to New York in 1979. 1979, okay. What was your first abode? Um, I lived in a loft on Walker Street, and my memories of, of, I mean, Tribeca and Soho at the time were kind of like a, kind of a wasteland. If I wanted a pack of cigarettes or hair dye, which in my memory is what I lived on, cigarettes and hair dye, I would have to go, I would have to walk from Walker Street all the way to Bleecker Street to find the first place that sold something. Okay. Brand of cigarettes and then what color hair dye? Um, well, the, the hair dye was black. black. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. I was going to say it was either peroxide blonde or. Well, no, it could have been. Now, hang on a second. It could have been peroxide blonde. I, I've also I also yeah. did peroxide blonde, but generally also so that it would take uh-huh. rinses. Like, yeah. I really liked gray. Mm-hmm. It was my favorite thing was to like bleach my hair and then put a rinse in it that would make it go gray. And cigarettes, I think I have to, it's, I'm really ashamed of this. I believe at the time it would have been Salem, which was mm-hmm. uh, a menthol cigarette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, where, so of where everything you, I've said so far, that's what I'm embarrassed you, where, by. Where, was, was Jose a young punk? Well, you know. What would you define yourself as at that time? I would have to say that might be accurate. Like, I find the term relatively limiting, that term, yeah. punk, mm-hmm. because it's a multi-discursive formation with a very specific time period. Mm-hmm. And I think anything that is at all removed from the initial emanation is already suspect. I mean, punk was probably co-opted uh within 12 months of its identification by the media so i know that i looked a sight i had very big back combed hair i weighed about 98 pounds i wore combat boots unlaced pleated skirts over ripped jeans with leather jackets and i would put eyeliner and mascara on spit on my hands and then drag the mascara and the eyeliner down my face um I'm loving so, it i wish i uh, i used to wear was, i used to wear eyeliner but i never thought of doing that oh you have to Damn. because then it looks like you've been crying it looks like you've been <laughs> battered it it definitely yeah. no one will bother you uh-huh. if that's what even you in, look like even the wasteland of tribeca walker street's a bit different there is now an art gallery at 47 walker street change um, days eh? And it was like a, a neighborhood, I think, that resisted that resisted change for a long time. I mean, we talk about sort of daunting m- hardships and, and mishaps, but it sounds like you you fitted in perfectly into that sort of New York environment at the time. That you you created your own identity. You were sort of embracing the sort of the music scene and the aesthetics of the time, fashion wise. What challenges did you encounter at that time? One of the first jobs that I had was um, as a tour manager Mm. for bands. And someone would book the tour. Mm. There was an an agent that I worked for, and she would book the tour. And then my job was to pick up the band at the airport and then to take them for 11 days from city to city and mind them So you would have to pay the hotel bill, give them their per diem, get paid by the club, 
And essentially, once you took them to the airport, when they would fly back to the UK, you were done with them. So my personality would change based on the kind of band that it was. And I think at the time I learned... And the color of your hair dye. I I think so. Probably, yeah. I think so. The idea with taking care of the bands, for me now, when I look back at it, is that they were the first artists that I ever met mm. and they were the first artists that I ever dealt with. Mm. And to learn what their needs were, to learn that their specific needs are unlike the needs of anyone else on the planet, that an artist's needs are not germane to any discussion outside of an artist's needs. That's the great lesson that I learned from this tour managing, which I did for about a year and a half. How did you end up landing that? Serendipity. When you were in clubs, you would meet people, and people would want to know what your interests were. They would want to know how you got in there. And I, at a club, met the woman who booked that particular club. And I wanted to know how that worked. How do you find bands? How do you book them? How, how does that whole apparatus work? Sent your curiosity at work again. Mm -hmm. So from those conversations, then... She hired me. Ah, right, okay. So if you hadn't been asking those questions, if you hadn't been digging and exploring, then your direction of life could have been quite different. Exactly. Mm. Just a, a, a quick aside. Um, New York Dolls or Richard Hell? Which one? Neither. Neither? Okay. Who was your favorite band at the time? Or bands? Oh, my. Uh, I liked a lot of the bands that I saw constantly. And the bands that I saw constantly were Suicide and ESG and Liquid Liquid and the Bush Tetras. They were bands that you could literally see every single week. Mm. You know, other bands, bands that had actually recorded bigger records, were bands that toured. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I was always a really big fan of the Talking Heads, but the Talking Heads would, they would tour because they were, uh, they were, uh, I mean, Pretty by 1978, time, yeah. they were like a well-known band. Yeah. So how did that, uh, that, that period go from being a tour manager to then sort of um, representing these artists further? And maybe then just start to explain to us how you navigated your career from music into art. I didn't navigate it. I did not navigate a thing, really. I, As I said, I had tour managed bands for a year and a half. I was kind of tired of being on the road, you know, having to like constantly like leave. And then there was the, the real terror is that frequently these bands would play Montreal and Toronto. So mm -hmm. I would have to cross the border with them. So when you would cross the border with a band like the Virgin Prunes, who like had like, I mean, they they performed some of them wore like gothic wedding dresses mm. and they used talcum powder they would completely covered in talcum powder and they would throw talcum powder into the lights for effect and you were crossing the border with these people and there was something really kind of terrifying about it and i always remembered this is what i really remember i remember driving you would play a club in boston called spit 
and then the next night you were supposed to play in Montreal. So after they would do the gig, you'd have to drive from Boston to Montreal. And I would always remember pulling the van over on the side of the road to get rid of all the drugs before you crossed over into Canada. And it's not a good idea to do a lot of coke (laughs) right before you cross the border because I think it makes it uh, even more stressful than it is already. So I wanted to kind of give up that life on the road, mm-hmm. and I knew that I could get a job playing records uh-huh. in a club. In New York? Yeah, so I did that. And Where was the club? Is Danceteria, mm-hmm. um, which was here in the 20s on 21st Street. And it had four floors, and the music was different on each floor, and I was only suitable for like Congo Bill, which was the top floor. So I would always say my style was music to OD by. So you could play like, maybe I would play one or two like new wave dance hits, but I would frequently play the instrumental side of the 12 inch and I would play it at 33 instead of 45. And then I would play like Dean Martin records. So it was really, you you played things to irk the crowd rather than to please them. And it, when was this? Uh, mid eight, early 80s? This is, 80s? this is the early 80s. This mm-hmm. is the early 80s. Do you ever see, um, so to go off and another question, do you ever see Klaus Nomai? Did I ever see him? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I, that was one of the things I would love to have seen him play he live. He played at Danceteria <sighs> regularly. Um, and uh, the, the thing is that there was a very active downtown mm-hmm club scene there were so many clubs downtown and there were after hours clubs and there was this after hours club on the corner of broadway and houston called berlin and i met a gallerist there and she was amazing a lunatic um and i remember one night at four o'clock in the morning me telling her how sad my life was and how burned out I was on the music business. And she said, you should come and work for me. And I said, I don't know anything about art at all. And she said, it absolutely does not matter. And she hired me to be her front desk boy. So I would, her gallery was in Soho and I would roll in to work anytime between like 10 and noon And if anyone wanted to criticize me or question me for my lack of punctuality, I would just give them a withering look. And I would sit at the front desk and I would answer the phone. And I would do things like type letters, answer the telephone, order toilet paper and paper towels. And by the time three years had passed, I was writing press releases. I was walking critics through the exhibitions and explaining the work. I had started to sell work to people who were walking into the gallery. And I felt that I had completely kind of learned how the art world Mm. worked in three years at the front desk of this gallery. Were you reading books about art and the history of art at that time? No, not at all. Not at all. Mm. Self-taught. Just just purely self-absorbing. Self-taught. When I moved to New York in nine, in when I was in 1979, when I was 19, I dropped out of college. Mm-hmm. I had gone to college for two years, 
Um, and I studied English literature and I had a minor in cinema studies. And by the time I'd gotten to the age of 19, college was interfering with my drug use. Okay. So I just decided to go with, <laughs> with the latter. Uh, so I really needed to dedicate my time fully to my drug use, which is what I did. But, but at that time when you were at college, were you, you, this is before you were managing bands? Yes, it was before, yeah. it was before. So I just, I just slightly, just on the cusp I went that. back yeah. in time to 77 and 78, and then there was the 78, 79 in mm. London, and then there was living in New York ah, from okay. 79 forward. Mm. Um, and just a quick question, where were you living in London? Oh my God, I lived in Twickenham. Are you serious? Yeah. You went all the way out to Twickenham and you go to London. I mean, it was very cheap. Living well, in Twickenham was like so. super yeah. cheap. But not much of a punk scene in Twickenham. No, back in no. The day. But I met I met one of Roxy Music. They they lived in in Richmond. Yeah. So there were people who lived in Richmond but, yeah, near, the, as well. near the near the Queen's Deer Park where yeah. we used to go in the morning and eat the mushrooms. Uh, well, there you um, go. That's, the, that's the reason. So there's there was, you know, I mean, you know, London was a thing. And plus you could sleep on the street, which I also did mm. a lot of because you couldn't get I couldn't somehow make the Public last two. Really yeah, it, it would today. stop. Yeah. You know, back from London, college was a, a distraction from your drug use. Yeah, so, and, so I ended up going to college in my thirties. Drugs are a huge part of my story. You know, I, I mean, I started doing drugs when I was thirteen years old. Um, by the time I was nineteen, I was doing catastrophic amounts of drugs and 19 to 29 is really like a big drug how, blur how a decade of drugs. drugs at age 13 my looks yeah all right okay <laughs> creativity um, yes <laughs> creativity i think we'll see <laughs> um so i i i got sober that's i mean that's why i'm sitting yeah. here at this age tired old age now is because i got sober when i was 29 um i never thought i would live to be 30 and that's why I never planned a career of any kind, because I thought, well, you don't need much of a career if you don't expect to live past 30. And when I was 29 and a half, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be 30. And that's when I got sober. So my memories of that 10 years, the decade between 19 and 29, is a bit blurry. Um, things start to come into focus once I get clean. You decided you made a conscious decision and presumably quite easily. You just stopped. Well, I tried to stop in when I was 25. I tried to stop and I didn't really succeed. The only thing I'd managed to do is that I had managed to stop using heroin, but I was still using a lot of drugs. I was still drinking a lot. And I only became sober when I was 29. So there is this kind of like already at 25, this kind of cognition mm -hmm. that it's got to stop and you've got to do something to curtail this. And what was the decision then to... Well, when I was sober, I started to look back at, you know, it's what one does. You start to look back at the wreckage of your past and see if there's any way it can be addressed. Um, so making amends is one of the ways of addressing the wreckage of the past, and another way is to try to see if there's something you didn't complete that you wish you had completed. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I wanted to like 
go finish school. And my SAT scores were no longer valid. They were out of date. And I was like, but I'm a normal person. I can't possibly take the SATs again because only, I mean, you have to have a certain kind of a mind to do that and adult minds can't do that. That's what I thought. So someone told me, I don't know who, but someone told me, you should go back to whatever school you went to initially and see if you can apply to be readmitted. So that's what I did. I went to this college in New Jersey. And by now, I have a gallery. Mm-hmm. I have a gallery in Chelsea. And I go to the, I go to my, the school that I, that I went to in New Jersey, this, this, teacher's college, Montclair State University. And I went to them and I say, I would like to apply to readmit. And it's a simple form. I filled out the form. I started going to school. So I would work at the gallery during the day. And then I would take a bus from the Port Authority out to this college. Mm -hmm. I would attend classes at night and on the weekend and then come back into the, and then come back into the city. Um, And I told no one, it was a secret. Um, because I was so embarrassed that I had dropped out of college. Studying what? Um, same again. In, I finished English. the same two degrees. Oh, right. So I got a bachelor's in, in in English. But I also took like art history classes. And I took, um, I also finished the cinema studies minor. And when I finished school, I decided to apply to a master's program, which I did. I applied to a master's program in cinema studies at NYU. So I did that while I was running the gallery. And then when I was finished with the master's program, I applied to the PhD program also in cinema studies at NYU. And I did all that work while running a gallery while running team. So sometimes, you know, I mean, one of the things you have to do when you do a PhD is that you have to be a research assistant for a year. And I remember having to like put in 20 hours work per week to be a research assistant and to have to prove the 20 hours. Um, And then I would have to, I had to teach. Um, And, you know, you originally have to be a TA, Mm -hmm. but then you actually have to like, write a syllabus, have it accepted by the department, and then you have to teach. And I would have to teach, and sometimes I would have to tell like a museum in Europe, oh, do you mind holding your opening on another day because I I teach on Tuesdays. Um, so I managed to somehow make all of this stuff work. It's incredible that you had the, the willpower and the discipline Having had a probably what was a polar opposite sort of decade in the in the in your twenties of indiscipline and going in whichever direction life took you, when I mean, you were you had clear intent here to do something with your life. At that point, you, obviously ambition must have had a part in this. But I presume it wasn't just regret about the way you described the wreckage of the past. There must have been something looking forward that gave you a sense of this is going to serve me in some and have some purpose. Or was it just another expression of your passion? I think I'm more comfortable saying that it was another expression of my passion. Uh-huh. If you're going to do something, do it well, yeah. do it completely. I, I, I kind of bristle at the idea of ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's something I'm I'm not supposed to have, so I become defensive when I hear it as an accusation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or that I hear <laughs> no, it as an accusation. No, it's, just, it's a really interesting the way you described your reaction to the institution of school, the conventions that society determined for a lot of us and say this is the way you have to go. Ambition is a quite a traditional word. 
that we're all told you have to have ambition. You, and it's in, but you've used the word passion a lot. And also, this, I think the thing that's interesting is the way you describe when you, you said there, if you're going to do it, do it well. It seems that everything you've done, whether it be drug use, <laughs> music, band management, fashion, everything you've done, you've thrown yourself in, in really deep with dedication. Yes, so this was I'd another yeah that. so this is another expression of that passion and dedication so how did you go from working on the as you said started out in the reception all the way through to doing the gallery tours the press releases to having your own gallery i um when after i worked there for 3 years I wanted to decide what was shown, and I knew that was something that I would never get in that gallery. I would never get permission to mm -hmm. curate anything. And there was uh, there were galleries on the um, in the East Village at the time. They were small galleries, and I someone told me, "Oh, a fr you know, I know someone who opened a gallery. They're kind of in over their head." They don't really know what they're doing, and they'd like to have an assistant come in and work. And one of the things they would do is that they would let you, they would let you help curate. Um, so for a salary cut, I went from this big gallery in Soho at the, what was at the time considered a big gallery to work at a very tiny, tiny space on East Tenth Street in the East Village, um, and. There, I was allowed to choose every other show. So I was able to continue doing the things that I had done at the bigger gallery, which was like talk to collectors, talk to critics, write press releases. Um, but I was also allowed to choose every other show. And that was really like such a great experience. Mm -hmm. How did you find the artists? How did you decide and then how did you go about booking them? And booking well, the I remember the very first day that I worked in the gallery, someone had canceled a show or the gallerist needed to cancel a show. For some reason, there was a slot that was available and it was very soon. And he said, I can't decide. And he handed me three sheets of slides. Because at the time, that's how you let people see your work. You would submit unsolicited slides to the gallery. And I held three sheets of slides up. I didn't put them in a projector. I just held them up to the light. And I looked one, two, three, and I said this one. Um, and it's a woman named Polly Apfelbaum, who actually is still like a, still an exhibiting artist, just someone who's had like kind of a, a major impact on art making for now, what is it, like 40 years? And near, nearly 40 years. Um, and I was the first person to give her a solo show. Um, and it was done from a sheet of slides. It seemed to me when I looked at the sheet of slides that it was the artist in that little group about whom there was no question. Um, and roughly a year after working in that gallery, the gallerist fell sick, fell ill. And it was like, it didn't seem like it was much. It was maybe a cold. It was like maybe the flu it was maybe pneumonia it was maybe really debilitating it was maybe he was dead within four or five mm. months um and it was happening everywhere in the new States. york yeah. yeah that people were fell ill and would die mm. um very soon 
Um, and the gallery closed and I was left without a job and I sadly told someone, I remember I like interviewed for a job somewhere. And I remember, I remember the gallerist, her name was Deborah Sharp and she had a gallery on Avenue B and she was interviewing people for a director's position and she interviewed me. And I think she ended up giving the job to a girl named Andrea Rosen. And I wasn't chosen. I remember being completely heartbroken. And I thought to myself, but who am I going to work for now? And I kind of, I'd met Holly Solomon. And I thought, well, I'm sure Holly would give me a job. But I kind of didn't want to do that. And someone said to me, how much money do you need to open an art gallery? And I said $10,000. Oh, you cannot open a gallery with $10,000. You can't now. You couldn't then. But I opened a gallery with $10,000 um, in 1987. I called it fiction, nonfiction. Um, and within like a year, I had a major European client the kind of person who would come in and would buy every single piece in an artist's studio, a real benefactor. And I'd gotten a review in the New York Times from Roberta Smith, and I felt that this was like something that I could do. I'm like, oh, I can do this. Um, and I was in the, I was in the East Village for 18 months on a month-to-month lease. And I think my landlord raised my rent seven times in 18 months. And when I moved out of this 800-square-foot space at the end of 18 months, I moved to a 3,200-square-foot space in Soho, and it was less money. So I, we, I moved out of the East Village to save money. And at the time, Colin DeLand moved out of the East Village to save money. 303 moved out of the East Village to save money because we were all being robbed in these tiny storefronts Mm. because people thought we were making a fortune. And I think of those people, you know, as Pat Hearn and Colin DeLand passed away. Lisa Spellman's 303 still exists and is still one of the great galleries of New York City. Um, Jay Gorney, who had a gallery in the East Village, is still like a very prominent figure in the art world and, you know, a major force now at, at, at Paula Cooper. The girls, I always call them the girls, um, the girls from PPOW, who I adore, uh, came out of that environment and still are, are, are doing important work in the art world. But you'd be surprised how few people survived that East Village scene and are actually in the art world actively doing things now. Can I just jump back and ask who... Did you encounter that offered you 10,000 when you asked that they said 10,000? And how did that conversation come about? It was in the first gallery that I'd worked at, Mm. the first gallery that I'd worked at. The gallerist was very well known for showing fine art and naive art in the same program. Okay. So she showed artists like, uh, you know, Jim Nutt and Roger Brown and Ed Paschke. So she showed people who are, you know, artists they went to art school art degrees but she also showed a lot of outsider art so she showed um 
Joseph Yoakum and Howard Finster and Martin Martin Ramirez. And she had a piece downstairs. I believe the artist's name was Felipe Archuleta, who was a folk artist who carved animals out of single pieces of wood. And he had carved a sheep out of a single piece of wood and then glued like sheep hair on it and painted it in a very crude manner. But the gallery had sold the piece, I'm pretty sure, to the Smithsonian. And this person, who was young and affluent, sat on it. And I told him very politely that it was actually a work of art Mm -hmm. and not something to sit on and and I told him the story of the artist and he said that he knew at that moment that I should do this for a living so that's the person wow (laughs) so it's somebody basically that I had done that thing that art gallery people do constantly which is to tell somebody from the general public don't fucking sit on that (laughs) don't sit on that don't poke at that don't scratch that don't touch and I somehow did it in a way that was charming. Mm-hmm. And, and that was it. So that was you on your journey to... That was me on my journey, which ended, sadly, in 1995, mm-hmm. when there was an enormous downturn in the, in the art market. And I was left owing an enormous amount of money to the state and to the federal government for... Um, income tax and sales tax. And I had to spend, I had to get a job, which I did. I got a desktop publishing job in 1995. And I spent a year working as much as I could and paying this debt off with money orders. Um, And I opened Team when I felt I had some solid footing Um, And team opened in 1996, so it is now in its 23rd year. And when it originally opened, it was one of the first 10 galleries in Chelsea. Um, It was only open three days a week, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, because I had to work a job the other days to pay the rent. Where Um, Where were you living? I was living in the back of the space. You are. Oh yes, and it was a it was a ground floor space, the ugliest space imaginable. But I paid eighteen seventy five a month for three thousand square feet on a ground floor, and the space was so ugly that I would show video all the time so that I could have the lights turned off so nobody would see how hideous it was. And the gallery's first successes, team's first successes, were with its video program. You were undaunted by this setback. It's how you respond to the the challenges in life that define you. And obviously that was a time that you could have been knocked back and gone in a different direction, but you didn't take it. You you persisted Mm -hmm. and got straight back in there. And in a very short time as well. I mean, obviously passion is at the heart of what you do. But what drove you to say, I need to be back in the scene? I I can't live without it. It's terrible, but I have to say it's this idea of not losing. Mm -hmm. It's this idea of not being defeated, Mm -hmm. which I kind of feel is the, you know, is part and parcel of my, 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 my personality being largely grounded in Mm -hmm. like years of substance abuse. I mean, you clearly know 
that you're not going to get high when you ingest these drugs. You are not going to feel good. You are not going to check out. You're literally not going to get anything. But you keep doing it. And it's because you think you're just, it's going to work this time. It's going to work this time. And there's something about that. It's always going to work next time that drives me. And there is something about having a gallery where, you know, you're, you know, my gallery has always been a precarious situation. I think in 2004, three um, um, women curated the Whitney Biennial in 2004, and they put three of my gallery artists in the Biennial. And it's not only that they were unknown artists, because they were, part of what was so galvanizing about it for the gallery for team is that you couldn't imagine the same collector buying those three Mm -hmm. artists Mm -hmm. so it's almost like three artists markets were born at the same time and in 2004 all the sales of all the artists in the gallery put together were three hundred thousand dollars so you take 300,000, you divide it by two, you give artists 150,000. That means I have 150,000 on which to run a gallery and live. Mm-hmm. 2004 was the last year that the gallery made less than a million dollars. So in 2005 was the first year that the sales of all the work put together mm-hmm. exceeded a million. So, um, do you think that was partly down to the impact of the the Whitney? Oh, it was a hundred percent the Whitney Biennial, a hundred percent. Um, if that had not happened, I would have just continued to run a poverty gallery, yeah, living um, in the back, living in the back. But there was something about that specific exhibition and that specific moment for those artists that allowed the gallery to grow. I want to go back to that moment that seems quite a defining moment when you held up those sheets and you saw something and was it Polly Applebaum? What was it? Because whatever it was that made you hold that one up and go, this is the one, must have been the same talent characteristic that made you also discover Ryan and some of the other artists that you represented. You know, I think it's um, an idea that something somehow in a Mm -hmm. moment feels new. And it seems to me that that's about personally being a repository of images and if you see an image that's derivative it's not so interesting because it's an image that you've seen before something that's already stored in your database but if you see something that feels at all different you know because people do talk about like the new in art and my feeling is that there is no new in art at some point but if you see a fresh interpretation, uh-huh. a spin, something that in a particular moment feels like it's outside of the mainstream. Or a use of medium or <clears throat> in some way, or technology. That, mm-hmm. that is what clicks. Yeah. And at the time, the work that Polly was making is that Polly had had fabricated things that looked like folk art. So they were perfectly made wooden orbs and symbols that you could tell related to the iconography of folk, but that were clearly very pristine and minimally executed. So they felt really new to me. 
I mean, there's so obviously there's so many curators and gallerists, but you've had sort of enduring success from, uh, albeit you, as you said, there've been times when it's been precarious. But that facet or that characteristic, that ability you have to spot the new, where did, where do you think it comes from? Do you think that the lifestyle you led and the sort of the, the colourful and the sort of the rich tapestry of life that you encountered? in those early years in some way affected your aesthetic and your ability to sort of see talent and something that, and identify something that the way you're describing of seeing a new interpreta interpretation. I think it's likely. I can't endorse that position mm -hmm. any more than to say I think it's likely. Mm -hmm. But that same thing that you saw with Polly's work, is that the same feeling that you had when you first encountered Ryan or Corey's work? Yes, I have to say it's exactly the same, the same feeling, feeling mm -hmm. and it's always exactly the same feeling mm -hmm. for me. Um, but it, to link it back to that past history, mm -hmm. I think you do have to intrinsically be somebody who thinks new things are interesting because there are a lot of people who don't think new things are interesting. Mm -hmm. They probably think they're irksome and problematic. Um, because until they're framed, um, until they're co-opted, mm. they are that. They're they're they are problematic. Someone has to position them. Someone has to somehow massage them into um, a comfortable place. In a way, that your your role is if it's to discover talent, whether it be in music or whether it be in art, is to always look beyond the mainstream is to look for the new because that's where that's sort of that new territory is where um, and it's going to satisfy your curiosity as well mm -hmm. to find it so how do you continue to remain to live on that point between the mainstream and what's contemporary and therefore what's popular and sells but at the same time remain hungry and always seeking out the new well because it must be it must be once you've reached that sort of point of success there there must be an element of resting on your laurels and i mean it's hard in any in any career to to remain well i edgy. i've recently had this idea that i peaked in september of 2014 <laughs> okay um, why was that in 2014 i opened a project space in venice beach california and I opened it with a show of Cory Archangels. At the same time, I had opened um, a show of Cory's at my 47 Wooster Street space and a show of Ryan McGinley's at my 83 Grand Street space. Okay. So I was someone who clearly had made his way in the art world. Mm. My family in no way are connected to art. So that already removes a certain number of gallerists yeah. from 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 consideration. Um, not that they shouldn't be considered, but they should just be considered somewhere separately. Yeah. But I had really made something of my gallery, and in 2014, I had two perfect white cube spaces in Soho. I had two extraordinary shows, maybe career high points for both of those artists. Ryan McGinley's yearbook show um, and Corey Archangel's show of Lakes pieces. Both shows had all of the, the trimmings. They had the full page ads. They had a lot of 
production costs. They really looked great. They looked like money. They were critically successful. But there was really no money to be made on any of the three shows, the one in L.A. and the two in New York. Corey's prices were still too low. It was a body of work of his that people were just kind of starting to wrap their heads around. And Ryan's show was completely unsellable because it was all, it was like a body of 700 photographs that were printed on vinyl and then adhered to the walls of a room. So I've referred to it as his magnum opus. It still is. He's still making work for it years later. Um, But there was nothing to sell. So I kind of feel like that was like, for somebody who came from factory worker parents to have accomplished that was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And there have been other extraordinary gallerists to have come along in the intervening years. Bridget Donahue, Jasmine at JTT, extraordinary gallerists. And what they've done is extraordinary because they've taken artists who are not part of the mainstream and they've really made total penetration with these artists. If you don't know who Jesse Reeves is, I mean, these these artists are really out there and they're out there with collectors, with critics, with artists, with museums. Did I leave anybody out in that list? Is, everyone knows who they are. But neither one of these galleries has multiple venues and white cube spaces. Their spaces are unique to them. So I think I also, in 2014, not only peaked, but I think the art world that I represented and the kind of success that a person like me could achieve in the art world, that also finished in 2014. That's also a past thing. So I have slowly done a kind of shedding. Um, I think in 2014, I had 16 employees. Now I have six. I The Wooster Street space was a five-year lease. At the end of the five-year lease, I closed the space. I am currently at the end of my five-year lease in Venice Beach. I will then close that project space. So I'm only keeping the, the Grand Street space. So it's one venue. Mm-hmm. And... I do little things for myself. Like, it's 36 years I've been in the art world. I have very little to show for it in terms of, like, things. I have the fact that I've had an extraordinary life for 36 years, which I would not have had if it weren't for the art world. But I need to live for me. Mm -hmm. So next year, I'm working on doing an entire season where I don't show a single artist that I've ever shown before. And that's how I'm going to entertain myself next year. Mm. So that means it's a way of the gallery sending kind of a very big message out to the people that have followed it, which is miss a show and you miss something brand new. Have have you already identified these artists? Yeah. I mean, they're they're very different situations. Uh It's not a matter of them being artists no one has ever heard of. So in certain cases, it's they used to show at that gallery, that gallery doesn't exist anymore, or they used to show at this gallery and they don't show there anymore. In other cases, there are people who have never shown in New York, but have shown outside of New York. Um, 
So there's a variety to them mm -hmm. in terms of um, where they are in their careers as artists, but none of them have ever had a solo show at Team. That's interesting. Is this something that no other gallery's done? Oh, I never, never say never. I'm sure somebody's Someone's done, done it, it somewhere, but not in New York. This is a this is a change in direction for a main, a main what would be deemed to be a mainstream gallery. I don't know if I have a mainstream gallery. Mm. Do I? I mean, now I don't think of mm. mainstream galleries anymore. Mm. I think of like supermarkets and not supermarkets. Uh -huh. I know I don't have a supermarket gallery. So therefore, how would you describe it? Your where you fit within the in the gallery market. I'm still somebody, I feel, who is judged on the last thing he discovered and made stick. Because I don't only find them, I make them stick. Some people can do one and then can't do the other. Someone complimented me recently, someone I had never met before. I met them at a social event and they complimented me on being New York's best feeder gallery. And I said to them, you know, that's a bad thing, right? <laughs> but I've thought about it since then, and I have no problem with being this, like, great feeder gallery. I mean, I did the last New York shows of, of the artist Stephen Perino. I represented him for the last eight years of his life. I sold three paintings in eight years for no money. I looked at the invoices recently. There's a painting out there in the world at, a, at another gallery right now that I sold initially for like $10,000 and it's worth a lot more than $10,000. But I had an interaction with Stephen Perino. I had a life with Stephen Perino. So I've made programming for Gagosian, and I have made programming for Skarstedt. Going to Carol Bove's studio and then showing her sculptures and having people say they're just used books on a bookshelf, the kind of resistance mm. and that kind of rejection from the public really made me fight for her like a dog. And which means I've now I've created programming for David Zwerner's gallery. I've created programming for Listen's gallery. There are artists on my program who are now represented by them. So you know what? If that's what I do, then it's what It'll I be, do. Yeah. It's it's okay. Um, so if it's a matter of like Banks Violet at Gladstone, uh, Stanley Whitney at Listen. Um, I, I think that these are accomplishments of mine. And I just hope that when I'm dead, the obit gets it right. <laughs> and they actually say, yeah, no, Jose did the show that made John Wesley's career. And Jose did the show that made Carol Bove's career. And he did the show that made Stanley Whitney's career. I just want that kind of known make sure it's recorded yeah. <laughs> somewhere. Would you call yourself an impresario? I guess so. Yeah. Because it feels that that seems to be a something, a, a thread that's running through, through your life. Like, there are certain things that I really enjoy, mm -hmm. right? So I came out very publicly a little over a year ago against the culture of art fairs. Mm -hmm. Um, I gave a very lengthy interview and it caused a series of 
ripples in the art world that are still being felt today. I loved art fairs. I loved applying to them. I loved getting into them. I loved deciding what I was going to hang, and I loved hanging it. Everything else I really hated. I hated sitting in those booths. Yeah, it must be torture. Oh my God, all those yeah. months of my life, you know, in a given year, the, the, the months were dedicated just to sitting in art fair booths and sleeping in atrocious hotels. Um, I just don't like that. I just want to put on a show. Uh-huh. That's what I want to do. That's what I enjoy. I, I don't, and, and I don't enjoy buying my artist's work back at auction. It took me a while to realize that that's where some of my relationships with artists have gone wrong. They've gone wrong when I've bought work back at auction that then I couldn't sell, which created economic hardships for the gallery. So now I just, okay, that's not what I do. When the work gets to a certain price point, call the blue chippers, get them in, and let them cart the artist away. Um, It's just not something that I can do and I can't do it because I'm not monetized. It doesn't make it bad mm. that I'm not monetized. It just makes it different. I still think that there is power in art and there's power in small galleries and I think that that power is necessary. Because somewhere right now there is a maladjusted 19-year-old who must show at Hauser and Worth 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. Because if Hauser and Worth can't get that artist 20 years from now, and instead they're at Zwerner, Mm -hmm. or instead they're at Pace 20 years from now, then they're losers. So that 19-year-old has power. They don't know they have it, but they have it. And somebody's got to discover them. And somebody's got to give them their first shows. Mm -hmm. And somebody's got to put them in public so that they can be then identified by these other great galleries. Yeah. That reminds me of your famous quote, which we might maybe cut out, but there's there's this um, Jose's famous quote, um, I'm not Kavosia, I'm just another loser with a gallery. That's true. One of the things a lot of guests have talked about is about their, and you're probably going to bristle at this as well, is goal setting Um, in terms of looking forward and saying that's where I'm going to be. I sense that your life has been very much a term that people like to embrace right now, which is living in the present, not looking back and not necessarily being concerned about the future. You... Everything the way you've just described, you seem to react and embrace the moment. Yes. Brilliantly. Yes. In a sense, and that's defined who you are. I mean, I was going to ask you the question. Who I, who I, who I, maybe who I was. Maybe I get to be somebody else. Another artist we uh, interviewed, um, Chantelle Martin. Obviously, she looks at identity in, in great detail and her as an expression, her art is an expression of her identity and, and that whole sort of discovery and uh, questioning of her looking back to where she's come from and where she's going to go. Do you look forward 10 years from now and think, where do I want to be? 
No, I've never done that. Yeah, I sense that. Yeah. I've never done that. And I must say this is the first time I actually think that might be a bad thing, mm. that I've never done it. But I wonder. I mean, I, I, I like it personally because I've never been, I've done goal setting in specific things, but I've always been someone that's just embraced the moment and trusted that, so going back to the whole thing of serendipity, I think if you, in the, and, the, and the, the idea behind this of just being innately curious being embracing opportunity, trusting in yourself and your own ability, unquestioning trust, and then just embracing the encounters that then um, happen is something I think is a, a is a is a power that a lot of people don't have because they fear the future and therefore they plan for it. And I think there's something in the power of the confidence in, in individuals like yourself that have just lived in the present, believed in your own ability, your own innate ability, fed your curiosity and just gone with the flow. And I mean, just look back at what's happened. And as you say, the way you describe yourself, I mean, this and, and that word impresario just comes to mind. You've discovered all this incredible talent and that isn't going to go away. You're probably going to continue to discover more talent in the future. So I suppose my question would be if you changed your approach now to life, would you lose what is your defining characteristic? I think so. I mm. don't think I can mm. argue with that. Yeah, I don't think you can let go of what you are. Mm. What principles do you stand by? Fearlessness. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough to take at the time that turned out to have been the right decision in the end? Letting go of things relationships, objects, etc. But letting go is something I find very difficult. Mm. Um, and whenever I've done it, it's been positive. Where do you go to discover new ideas? The treadmill and the elliptical machine. <laughs> um, I have very clear thoughts while on either literature um, because I find that in trying to, particularly fiction, mm. um, in trying to identify um, with different perspectives, opens my mind to interactions with other people and their ideas. Okay. Where do you go when you need space to think? The water. The river. Um, the beach? I'm fine with water, period. Beach, lakes, river, etc. But especially the beach for me. It's, it's um, you know, in, I love the beach in winter. That kind of like, you know, the air, the bracing quality, the air really lets me think mm. clearly. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? My husband. Mm. Um, my husband, Daniel Barrett. Mm. Oh, it's just terrible. He's made me a better person. And I mean, that's the best thing he's done is made me a better person. But he's also made me appreciate myself more. How do you keep up with technology? By admitting I'm grandpa and <laughs> keeping young people around me yeah. and having them explain it constantly. Okay. <laughs> I say, please tell grandpa how this works exactly. All right. Uh, um, our impossible question. What would your advice be to someone who's in their 20s, who has a dream, a goal, a grand ambition that's being told, 
forget it as impossible. If not now, when? Okay, that's good. Straight to the point. What book would you like to offer uh, us to offer the listeners with submit, submit the best comments? Anything of Thomas Hardy's. All right. What movie would you suggest? A New York classic that someone should watch that they may not have seen. A New York classic. Is yeah. that what you said? No. No. Oh, new, oh, 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 no, oh. New, that's maybe new, a good question. Oh, new or a classic. I'm actually, I'm going to ask that question as well. Yeah, okay, a new film or a classic film that you think someone should watch. I I would have told people anything by Alain Rene, but now I would say anything by Billy Wilder. Okay, all right. Really, anything, anything. by Billy Wilder. All right. You know my, just talking favorite New York film? I know what mine is. You know what yours is? Yeah. Okay, go. Panic in Needle Park. Oh, I, I love it. I haven't seen that. Okay, right. I'm gonna. Uh, that's the weekend. Weekend watching. Robert De Niro. Are you kidding? Mm. Yeah. Panic in Needle. The other no, one. No, no. Sorry, Al Pacino. Sorry. Al Pacino. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> the other one. Yeah. The other one. Mine is um, my dinner with Andre. Okay. I love very, that. very great, very great movie. Uh, my dinner with Andre. <gasps> I think it's one of the most touching movies ever. Yeah. Okay. And karaoke song. Karaoke song. <laughs> I'm not a super karaoke person. I know I know if there's a whole song, mm. yeah. I pick that, but that's usually only in Japan that I can find whole. Uh-huh. So usually it's something by Carly Rae Jepsen. Uh, okay. I prefer whole personally, but there. Uh, well, let's go to Japan. Um final question, who should we interview next? Garrett Bradley. Well, f- need you to follow up and tell us who Garrett is and Yeah. Garrett Bradley is a filmmaker, mm-hmm. she's young, mm-hmm. she's in the current Whitney Biennial. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to admit, she's the daughter of one of my artists. Okay. And the interesting thing is that the mother was in the Whitney Biennial twice, and now the daughter is in the Whitney Biennial. Um, and she, okay, she's in the Whitney Biennial now, she just had a short film in the new director's mm-hmm. films series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she's really, she's young, unknown, and I think really extraordinary. Okay. Jose, thank you so much for your time. I want to acknowledge you for a number of things that I think come through in this. And you're a nonconformist, first and last. It seems to have been defining, a defining characteristic that I think is a strength, a superpower. Clearly, your innate curiosity your courage to take the road less travelled, confidence in yourself and fearlessness clearly as a, uh, as, a, as a strong facet of who you are. And um, your resilience and your persistence to reimagine the future, which I just think is um, exciting and makes New York a better place. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.